I want to read the first uh, 11 verses of Genesis 37, and, uh, and then we'll get into this. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhad and the sons of Zilpah, the father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him or on friendly terms. And then Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have, I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then the brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now he had still another dream. And he related to his brothers and said, lo, I had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So you can tell as we come then to Genesis 37, we come to Joseph. We've been following really, uh, Genesis really becomes a, a character study very quickly as it really goes like from Noah and then we get into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Joseph. And Joseph will pretty much uh, take us to the end of the book. And of course, Joseph, remember, is Rachel's, uh, the one that uh, Jacob really loved. He got tricked and had to work more for her um, and ended up having to marry Leah first. But he was the first son that was born to Rachel, his true love. Um, Chapter 36, if you just look at it real quick, you can scan down it quickly and you know two things. It's a genealogy by all the names. Like verse 1 says, the generations of, of Esau that the nation of Edom came from. And you know something else. Anytime you see a chapter full of names, it's a chapter that your pastor is going to avoid. <laughs> because, man, I could just butcher the word so bad, can I, at times. And, of course, I know you can do it too. It's just I get to do it in public and you don't. <laughs> But anyway, um, it is about Esau and he became, his people became the nation of Edom. And that is a area by east and south of the Dead Sea. You could just look at it real quickly. I'll give you what it says. In the, it says it's a list of his wives and the sons that came by those wives starting at verse 2. Then at verse 19, it begins to talk about the children born to those sons. Then those who were in what would become Edom already, verse 20, then the kings of Edom at verse 31, and finally the chiefs that came out of Edom in verse 40. And so it's a list of his descendants. And if you look at verses 6 through 8, you kind of get a, a reason in part of why and how Edom came into existence when it says Esau then took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household, his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which were he had a, a, acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went to another land away from his brothers. And we know now that it isn't because him and Jacob were still fighting. 
Him and Jacob have made up. They're reconciled. But it's like it said, um, the, the, heart, the herds and everything are just getting too big. So verse 7, their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of the livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So that is the, the gist of uh, chapter 36. And if you're wondering what you're going to do tonight, there you go. Okay, there's some quiet time reading for you. Uh, genealogies make wonderful quiet times with your children, okay? I'm just joking, all right? Now, as we come to Joseph, there is something else that I want you to see as we begin now his life. And I, and I think it's interesting to look at it. Our remaining chapters do deal pretty much with him. At the very end, uh, there'll be a prophecy by Jacob over his sons. But it's pretty much about him, the events surrounding his life, how he's going to get betrayed by his brothers. We'll see that this morning, how he'll be taken to Egypt. That will happen this morning. Uh, next week, we'll see he'll be put in prison unjustly. But then he'll start rising to power and ultimately save his family. So we could say that from 37 on, it is how the Lord gets uh, Jacob and his family to Egypt. But when you hear that, the question that should come Anytime is how is why. And this is really interesting to think about because this is the bigger picture as we end the book of Genesis is the bigger picture is why the Lord did this. Why did he take him to that land that Abraham had gone to and was told he shouldn't have. And even Isaac was exhorted, don't you go to Egypt. Okay, we've already seen this in Genesis. And so the short answer is because he wanted to take them down first to preserve them then to birth a nation and ultimately bring forth the Savior of the world. God had told Abram when his name was still Abram back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be in bondage for 400 years. Genesis 15:13. God said to Abraham, you know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and there they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And so that is what God said would happen. And of course, you and I know Egypt is the answer to that verse. And so there were probably three reasons why God did this. The first of all is he had to get them out of the land at this time because of the Amorites. The Amorites were one of the most powerful tribe and nation in Canaan. They were wicked. They didn't fear the Lord. And so they posed a threat to Israel, if you will, in the sense that they could have wiped them out, one. And two, they posed a threat that they were wicked and Israel could have easily started assimilating into them. Okay. How sad it is that that happens, that people fall into sin and they become more like the sin than the godly people they're supposed to be. And so they needed to be displaced, if you will. And in the time then, the Lord would do it, but it would take 400 years of um, iniquity to finally get the, the Amorites' iniquity had to reach a certain level before they would, de- they would be displaced. Not Israel, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. So Genesis 15:16 says, then the fourth gen- in the fourth generation they will return. That's speaking of Israel, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so the Amorites are one of the largest tribes nations in the land. They are wicked beyond belief. They are going to grow. They are going to not reach that point where God says enough is enough. It will take 400 years. And so God that's, he gets them out of this land because of that. So that leads to the second thing. Why did He take them to Egypt to protect them? 
When they enter Egypt, they are 70 men. And then, of course, women and children, livestock, etc. But 70 men, and we wouldn't call that a nation, would we? That'd be like some of the little islands. And I'm not trying to put down little islands, but we know that, you know, if we go to a little island and there's 70 men and this many people and they, they're the nation of whatever, you kind of go, well, I know you're a nation, but that's not much of a nation, you know, you know. America's a nation or Britain's a nation or India, you know, whatever it might be. But anyway, that's all they were. And so they are really, if you will, give them, they were a small tribe and their family could have easily been slaughtered out in this land at this time. Now, we know God's going to protect them. That's what he's doing. And so unlike the Amorites and the other wicked nations in Canaan, by God taking them to Egypt, I'm giving you a history lesson here. The Egyptians at the time They were not a people at this time in their history that really cared about intermarrying and intermixing with other people. They were the people of the day. They were the nation of the day. And they knew it. There was a national pride. And they saw themselves in a way as better. And in many ways they were. And very advanced over other nations. So the last thing you would have wanted as an Egyptian was to cross marry with anybody that you would consider less than that. And so the threat to Israel assimilating into Egypt was really slim. And Egypt would then provide a place of protection. And then this leads to our next thing, a place where they could grow, where God would develop them into a, from a family to a nation. And so in that 400 period time, and we'll get into this as when we finish Genesis here, I'm going to move the Old Testament study to Wednesdays. We'll go right on into Exodus. And when those 400 years are up, we'll see that God takes them in as 70 people or 70 men, but he will bring them out as 600,000 males, not to mention women and children. And experts estimate then they come out of Egypt 400 years later, two to three million strong. What has happened? Very much they've gone from a family to a nation. So very interesting, isn't it? This whole thing that's taking place where it seems like Our focus is just going to be on Joseph now, but behind the scenes, and this is so important because so often we can be focused on the immediate and we forget that there's something else going on. And that's what we're going to see, that the Lord has got something bigger taking place, like verse 2 says, that these are the generations of who? Of Jacob. See, that's the bigger picture that we find in Genesis. And really throughout the word... When, when God identifies himself as a God, he always says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He doesn't say, and Joseph, see? And that's what he's trying to say. And so, again, it can seem like a mistake is, is made, being made as Joseph is going to be taken in Egypt, but it's God's will, and it's more about the nation of a whole than Joseph. And you know what? Can I just say right here, that's, that is a good reminder to us today. We live in a culture today, in the year 2007, in North America, that it is all about us. That's the culture. And if you don't see that, you should see that because it really will it, it skews your Christianity and what it means to be really a servant of Christ. And so I think it's just a great reminder, Lord, that, that as we see that we finish the book, it's really bigger than Joseph. Lord, same as too. When we're a Christian, we're a part of a church. Um, it really isn't about us. And I don't mean to upset you by that, but I want to help you learn that because it's a problem today within the church. So often people you know, are looking for a church and they shop churches and it's just, it's all about them. 
And yet, um, Jesus makes it clear, man, deny yourself. You know, become my servant, become my slave is the word. And so it's really about him. And that's a good reminder. Now, following the events of Shechem, and you remember Shechem didn't go well as two of Jacob's sons. Their sister was raped. So they tricked the Shechemites, if you will. That's a proper name for them. Um, They tricked the men of Shechem to become, they said, we'll assimilate with you if you guys will get circumcised. Then they waited for the third day when the pain was at the height and they went and they killed every single man and boy of the people and took all their belongings and the women and the children. And so if any good came out of Shechem, it was the fact that they finally got out of Shechem. They went down south to Bethel by today where we're at. They're in Hebron and um, where they probably should have gone when they first left Laban and got out of that area. And so now being in the area of Hebron, it's about 15 miles south of Jerusalem. The family's doing what they do best. They're taking care of the flocks and they're shepherding. And Joseph, being now the second to the youngest, Benjamin's been born, remember, by Rachel. So he's 17 years old and he's working with his brothers as well, taking care of the sheep. And verse 2, having been sent up there by his father, he brings back a bad report to Jacob, his dad, concerning his brothers. And there's two things to remember here. One is we don't really know what the bad report was. We do know it was bad. And I could imagine that uh, you put, um, you know, these boys together. Anytime you put um, 11 boys together, or maybe it's 10, you know, maybe a Benjamin's too small to be up there. Uh, but that's not good. You, you know, you put four boys together with no parental supervision and you're going to have problems. And so we don't know what the bad report was. And we don't know really if. Joseph was what we would say being like a, a little tattletail or a snitch, you know, stick, sticking his nose in an area where he shouldn't have, or had he actually been sent by, sent by his father? And I think he had been sent by Jacob because Jacob knew what these guys were capable of. And so he, he's sent there. And again, the reason I say it is as we travel with Joseph, when he is taken into Egypt, when he's in prison and out of prison, you see nothing of that type of thing in his character. He is anything but uh, uh, high character. He's got extremely high character and uh, he's got a man of integrity. And so really that type of thing with snitching just doesn't fit. Now, there are two other things that didn't help Joseph with his brothers. Not only was he favored, the brothers knew that, kids know that, um, but really helped him in in finding this unwanted trip to Egypt. First was his father favored him, verse 3, and gave him this coat of many colors, which no doubt became a constant reminder to the brothers that dad loves me more than you. And I don't think Joseph was saying that, but that's what they saw. You know, here they are for a family picture, right? All the other boys are wearing, you know, uh, your, your modern day tan garment, right? And here's Joseph. In his clown costume, you know, this multicolored thing of peach together, you know. So they just hated it. You know, here he comes again, man. And it just represented everything that they, they hated. So that's, that didn't help matters um, in the sense of, you know, his relationship with his brothers. And notice verse 4, it led to his brothers hating him. Okay, we're talking, this is serious. And, and not even being able to talk to him in a civil manner. And to a degree, we can understand why Jacob did this. Remember, Rachel is who he really loved. You can imagine when Joseph was born, yes, this is a son by the woman I really love. And then she had died by this time. 
And so no doubt there was a, a, a real affection there because of her. And it probably reminded him. And, you know, just quickly for you parents, this is something that's really important here. It may be the thing that if you leave with nothing else, they leave with this or you that are going to be parents someday is be very careful about favoring your kids. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a mistake. It will it will ruin your your household and it will cause problems for years to come. And that's what we see here. We see that Jacob favored Joseph and because of it, these brothers did not like him. And we saw the same thing with Esau, Esau and Jacob when they were young, that they were favored. You know, Jacob was favored by uh, Rebecca and Esau was favored by Isaac. And so, again, it's a good message to us. And it's not easy, is it? You know, sometimes in a home, we had two kids and our kids were really pretty good. So I really can't say one was worse than the other. They were different. All I need to say is one was a girl. One was a boy. You know, girls have emotions. It's just like, yay, 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 honey, take care of her. You know, but you guys know in a home that sometimes one of your kids, he's just he or she's just better. And, and so if you're not careful, it's going to be easy to favor that kid and even pounce on the others harder and just be careful that you don't, don't, don't do that. So that's the one thing is the coat. The second thing that really strained the relationship with the brothers and Joseph is these dreams, verses 5 and 9. The first dream, Joseph has this dream that they're buying up grain at harvest time. And like some animated movie, his stands up and the others bow down to it. The second dream, there's the sun, the moon, the stars representing the family, and they are bowing down, okay? And, and this time even Jacob's dad, Jacob is, having a hard, Jacob is having a hard time accepting it, rebuking him for uh, thinking such things. And so like with the multicolored coat, the dreams only made the brothers hate him even worse and increased their jealousy. I thought, I was thinking about this seriously. This sounds like my wife. My wife is really weird. And some of you are like this, okay? You just haven't told me. My wife not only has dreams, we all have weird dreams, don't we? You know, do you know don't make too much out of your dreams? You know, when you, if, you, if you can remember them, you go, it doesn't really, that's weird. My wife, for years, not only does she dream a lot, she remembers them. So in our home, now the kids are gone, but when the kids are younger, you know, wink with it. It wasn't uncommon here go, hey, you want to hear what I dreamed last night? And almost like in unison, me and the two kids would go, no, <laughs> you know, just because she just, she has these, even the other, I'm not going to tell you what she dreamed the other night. It was, it concerned you and it wasn't good. You know, I said, that's not a good dream, honey. You know, but, but anyway, this is the type of thing kind of, you know, he's just got this, this thing. And, and, and so they didn't like it, but, but remember this, Joseph wasn't making these up. Joseph just went to bed that night. I'm going to sleep. It's that time. And during the night, God in his sovereignty said, this is a night, Joseph, that I will intervene in your sleep. And I am going to give you these two dreams and visions of what really will become the future of you and your family and this nation. And so you got to remember that. Okay. And it did come true, didn't it? And it seems Jacob had a sense, didn't he? At the end of verse 11, it says, but his father kept them saying, so his father rebuked him. He didn't like the fact that I'm going to bow down to you. Boy, you got it the wrong way around, you know. So let me tell you, the day your kid comes in and tries to take your authority as a dad, it's just something in us. We go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm in charge. See, I've always joked with my son, Jeremy, and we don't wrestle anymore. But when he was 17, oh, God, he got he just got strong. 
And it became really apparent, but I, I just, you know, it's just like I would fight him to the death if I had to, if it meant him realizing that I'm not dad. So anyway, we don't do that. Don't go away here thinking, oh my goodness, the pastor of Calvary Chapel Linwood is beating his son up. You know, so it's not happening. Okay, if anything, he would beat me up. Trust me. Okay, and, and I hope he isn't doing that or won't do that. But anyway. Um, but Jacob had this sense that that there was something going on here. And he was a spiritual man. And he wondered if it, something wasn't from the Lord. Now, I can hear some of you saying, Scott, was it really wise for Joseph to share those dreams? You know, couldn't he have just, you know, shown a little bit more wisdom? And, and maybe there is some truth in that. But, you know, a couple of things is, first of all, he's a 17-year-old. How many of us at 17 had that kind of wisdom? You know, if something special happened to you at 17, poof, it just came out, you know. And so that's one thing to keep in mind. But I think also that maybe Joseph, and he is quite an individual, isn't he? We're going to see that. Maybe he had some, an idea that this is important to my family. And, uh, and so he knew he had to share. Very interesting, later on in Levitical law, the Levitical law isn't in existence yet, but in Leviticus 5, Five one, a part of the law will become it will become a God will say it will be a sin if you know something that could be beneficial to another or keep them from harm and you don't share it. That's a sin. And so if you think of that way, that principle, then by Joseph sharing what he did, maybe he did have a sense that my family needs to know this. Something is about to happen to us, and so he shared it. You know, there is something I want to just take a few moments here to apply. And it is the whole thing with the, the hatred of the brothers. When sometimes we can, we see they, they had hatred, they had anger, they had jealousy. Um, and so sometimes we can think that hate is just hate and jealousy is just jealousy and envy is just envy. Um, and it can increase. But I want you to show, I want you to see something here that this passage makes it very clear that you and I need to be careful that we deal with those things. It's a good reminder to us that for even us who love Christ, we understand this. And that's what we see with the brothers. First of all, we are capable of anger and jealousy and envy. There's not a one of us in this room that hasn't had uh, that emotion, right? I mean, seriously, we've all had that. And so if that's the case, we have to understand that anger and jealousy and envy, if we don't put it under the control of the Spirit of God in our lives, and we don't put it under submission of the Word of God, then it can grow into hatred. And hatred, if it's not dealt with, every time leads to sin and more damage. And all of us have either been guilty of that or been at the end of that, where because of this, that's happened. The word hate or hatred in the Hebrew here means to change, to alter, to be changed. And that's exactly what is happening to the brothers. They are going from... They don't like their brother because dad favors them. Now we don't like him because of his coat. Now we don't like him because of his dreams. And ultimately, what is it going to lead to? Let's kill him. And I wish I could say today, that doesn't happen today. I don't know about you. I try not to, seriously, I try not to watch much news anymore. Because most of the time I don't need to know it. If you don't realize 90% of news is negative, it does nothing for you and your walk with the Lord and having faith or anything else. It's quite discouraging. But every single night, you know, with especially with the ability to report things everywhere, whether it's in Seattle, and I mean the Puget Sound area or beyond, 
we see people being murdered. Even this week, I just, when I heard, I didn't even know this story, and I, I watch, I go, I asked Wink, I said, what's that? She goes, oh, and where that, that guy killed his kids, and I guess eight of them, I just went, I just, I just, I just, I don't know what to say. How do you take a life? How do you take a precious children, you know? And so that's what we see, though. And so they're envious, and it moved them, it provoked them. And there, there's an anger deep within. So much, like I said, they're willing to kill him. And you guys, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that those emotions are in us, and that's why we have to deal with them. And when we see it, what it did in Joseph's brother's lives, Again, it's a reminder to guard against it. Watch for those seeds of hatred and jealousy and envy. See, understand, get beyond the fact. Don't sit there and say, I don't have those. Just say, you know, cross that line. You see, I'm capable of hatred. I'm capable of jealousy. I'm capable of envy and anger. So that's where you should be. Because when you don't, then you're going to blindside yourself. They're going to actually be in your life, but you're in denial. So the better thing is, yeah, I'm capable of that. But then the minute you see those seeds, deal with them. Because if you don't, they will take root and they will bring damage in your situation. So that's another thing. Another thing I want you, uh, one thing, another thing I want to see, and I think it's amazing here that comes out in these verses, is this, this truth and this principle that to go, to get where God wants us to be, okay, the blessing, that's what we want. Don't we want our life blessed? Don't you want contentment, you know, to be fulfilled, um, that mountaintop experience? You always have to go through the valley. Watch this. Always. No exceptions. Okay? You cannot say, God, can I have a pass? You know? You can't. You always have to go. From verses 1 to 11, what I read to start with, you could say that's the fun. Joseph has these dreams. Joseph is favored by dad. This is incredible. God's working. God's moving. Okay, Joseph. Now, let me fulfill these dreams through your life. Into the pit you go. To Egypt you go. You know? And you know what? You're not going to like this. Sorry, I'm the bearer of bad news today. Joseph, when he's sold, he begins a trial of 13 years. 13 years. You know, it's funny when we go through a trial, you know, it's like, okay, Lord, it's the third day. Come on, what's the deal? If it's, if it's day eight, you know what you do on day eight? You call the pastor. Pastor Scott! You know? And, and on, and Pastor Tom and Pastor Jesse and so on, you know. But that's what we do. And Joseph is about to enter into a 13-year trial. So it's really interesting to realize that, that how things are going to change now for him. And from being thrown into the cistern, he'll get imprisoned. The Lord will take Joseph uh, through what was absolutely necessary for him to become what we so admire, this incredible man of God, the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and ultimately the Savior to his family and to, to Egypt as he as he manages the, the crops of Egypt. And it took these hard experiences, listen, to shape his character so he could be ready and thus elevated. You guys, listen to me. It takes the hard experiences. We have to go through these things to shape us in to be like Christ. There's no pass. You know, if you go to Disneyland, I think it costs like $1,000 a day now to go to Disneyland. Um, but I understand, I haven't been for years, but uh, it's not quite that high. Okay. But it's, it's like a hundred bucks, okay? So, 
<laughs> talk about a family outing. You thought a Mariner game was expensive for the family. You know, but if you go to Disneyland, you know, there's the lines. And really, that's all you do now when you go to those amusement parks. You just spend the day waiting in lines. But they have this thing now. You could buy this. I don't know what it's called. You know what it is. And it's a special pass. And they tell you what time to come back. And you go right up ahead and get on, right? And there's no waiting. And I, I wish I could tell you that, okay, after service, if you really want to, come to my special room and I'll tell you about a special pass and you can avoid all these trials. But that answer's not there. There's no such place. See, Disneyland's a fantasy, you know. And in Christianity, God says, I want to bless you and I want to shape you and I want to give you so much. But it's, it's really about you and I need to shape you and mold you and, and, and crucify you. And so we have to go through these things, you guys. And God uses them. You know, we so often complain about what we're going through when really we should be thankful because we should realize they are making us, if we will let them into the person that Christ wants to be. Do you realize in a sense, in that sense, every hardship that we go through, every hardship God then can use and it's designed for success? And that's amazing really to think about it. We always look at it the other way. We just think, this is the pits. What is he doing to me? Get me out of this. And if we'd realize, wait a minute, it may take some time. I don't think it'll take 13 years, but so be it if it does. God is going to really bring me through. And you know, I say that, and I hope many of you agree with me, that I don't like the things God has taken me through in my life. And I wish I could say there's no more, but I got I just know him. <laughs> you know, he, he just keeps adding chapters to the book, doesn't he? You know, my book. So it's just like, okay, God, I think I've gone through every experience. I'm pretty well shaped to be like Christ. He, I open the book the next day and, hey, there's a new chapter in there. Where did that come from? And, you know, all of a sudden I have to go through something else. And again, I go, okay, Lord, take me through those things and shape me. Well, let's go on. Verse 12. His brothers went to pasture their flocks in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flocks in Shechem? Uh, and I wonder how he said it. Come and I'll send you and, and to them. And he said, I will go. So again, he's, you know, what are they up to? What are they doing up there? And, and so what happened, you guys, is they were up there. Joseph brings back the bad report. They probably came back. That's all dealt with. Well, they had gone back up there. And so now he's going to send Joseph back up there again to check it out. And note Joseph's response. I think this is so important. You might want to highlight these words in verse 13. He says, I will go. Now, you know me by now if you've been here for any length of time. I love to take things like that and I see things in them. First of all, it's a great reminder. That's exactly what the Lord is looking for in you and I as believers who love Jesus Christ. He is looking for you and I to be people who will say, I will go, Lord. You know, is this what you want me to do? I'll do it, Lord. See? And so it's a great reminder. When he called Peter and Andrew and as well the other disciples, um, he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It's the same message, see? And they go, I will go. In the Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's the same thing, you know. He tells us to go and we're to be willing, saying, I will go. And it's such an incredible thing to think about that. And that's what God wants. You know, Pastor Chuck for years has had this parable or proverb, you know it, where he says, Blessed are the flexible, you know, because they'll be used by God. And that's what you and I want to be. We want to be flexible people. We want to be people that say, Lord, I'll go. This is what you want me to do. I'll do it. Another thing it points to, I think, and I, I kind of want to read into this a little bit, is I think it speaks to you and I that 
it is to also show that we're to be concerned for others. See, Joseph in the context is saying, Dad, I'll go up north to Shechem. Why? To check on the boys, to check on the brothers, to check on your son's dad, because you're concerned. And so Joseph loved those guys. It's going to come out at the end of the book when he finally says, everybody else get out of the room. And he reveals to them who he is, that he's still alive. And it's just the most emotional and powerful scene there is in Scripture when the brothers in him are reunited. Why? Because he loves them. And so that's going to take place. And, and so now, you know, he's not a tattletale. He's going up to the, his brothers that he loves and he's going to check it out. And I just thought, you know, guys, that's a great reminder for you and I that as believers... We're to be concerned for others. You know, you know my roots uh, in the early days, I came to Christ in the Salvation Army ministry. And the founder of the Salvation Army was this incredible man of God, really. His name was William Booth. Most of the time you see his pictures when he's really old, he had a beard about down to here, all white. But he really was an incredible man of God. One time, I've told this before, but I just think it's so powerful you kind of picture it. They had a, the, uh, this, these congresses where all the officers would come. So all the captains and colonels and everything, you know, they just did that. And they came and they're going to meet with their general, you know, their general of God to hear his word and what God wants of us as an army. And so this time he was really sick and he couldn't go. And so he sent a telegraph. And you could imagine if you were there, whoa, I wonder what it says. I wonder what he wants us to hear. And so they opened the telegraph. And much to their amazement, there was one word capitalized, the word others. That's what this incredible man of God, as he thought, no doubt, what can I say to my fellow officers? What do they need to know as they serve Christ? He says, this is it. And all he said was others. It literally took place. Amazing, isn't it? And that's what you and I need to understand. You know, in Matthew 25, 37, we read, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And see, Jesus, you guys, desires to build into you and I, his followers, a concern for others. A heart that says, I'll go, Lord. I'll go where you want me to go. And Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll care for who you want me to care for. You guys, listen. You know the, you understand you face a battle in this area? I face a battle in this area. Why? Self-centered culture. It's everything we hear is about us. Everything, you know, pamper yourself. You deserve this. Buy this. Do this. Get this house. Do that. It's all about us. And there's not a message out there other than the Scriptures and Christ that's saying, no, it's not about you. It's about others. And so you and I have to understand that's what we're fighting against. And so when we hear this and we see it in the word, we need to realize, yes, Lord, that's what I'm supposed to be about. And I think what needs to happen is I think for many of us, we need to retrain our hearing. I think there's opportunities all the time where God is laying things before us. And there there are things we could hear where we could go and show concern and actually help others, but we're not trained to hear it missionary and his wife and children wonderful people you have to take my word for it someday I'd love to get Dave here who are in Germany they have a need God's put that before you see you'd say well Lord I don't when did I do that and, he, and he'll say well you, you did it unto me when you you know you did this for that missionary 
or you heard of this need, you know. And so, see, we have to we have to start hearing. And, you know, God speaks to me in the same way. And I have to be challenged in the same way. God will tug at my heart, you know. Sometimes I think we make a mistake that we think it's just the pastoral staff, you know. But opportunities are when we hear something going on. There's maybe something in the fellowship or somebody's going through something. You see, see that passage in Matthew, Jesus didn't say that for the church leadership. That's for his followers, see. And you and I need to understand that. You know, you don't know how many times as a pastor, I get asked to go visit somebody. Usually it's a family member or friend, and I don't know them. And I've had multiple times when I've had to go to a hospital to visit somebody, and they're on their deathbed. Now you say, well, how do you do with that, Scott? I, I still don't do it well. In other words, it's not something I look forward to. It's not something I'm ever like, okay, I got this down. You know, you don't know the fear and trembling that I go into those situations with. Usually I bring Wink, my wife, because I, and she's fine with that just as long as she goes, I don't have to say anything, right? I go, no, I just need moral support, man. You know, and, but you know, here's what I want you to understand. You don't know how many times the way I go into the room, the countenance I go into the room with is so different than how I come out. You guys see what I mean? Same for you. You say, well, I don't, you guys, Scott, you mentioned things at times. I don't know those people. Well, all you need to know is they're in need. If they're Christians, they're your brothers and sisters. So your family, you know, distant family, you know, it's like a 12th cousin or something, but, you know, go check it out. So anyway, I, you understand what I'm saying. But I think it's important. And I just pray that you and I will understand we're up against the battle in this area, but it's something the Lord wants to do. Well, let's go on for verse 14. Then he said to them, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flocks and bring word back to me. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said to him, they have moved from here for I heard them say and let us go to Dotham. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. And when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And so Dotham is up to the north. When you look at this map, it's amazing the area they're covering in shepherding their flocks and everything else in this land. And so they're now beyond uh, Hebron, uh, beyond Bethel, uh, beyond Shechem, and way up in the north there, um, more towards Sea of Galilee than the Dead Sea. And how do you think they knew Joseph was coming? The coat, exactly. Here comes clown boy, you know. And they didn't like that jacket, man. You know, everybody else in those days, the fashion in Israel was brown, okay. If you were lucky, white. But it soon became brown, okay. And so here comes Joseph, you know, in this clown coat, you know. And they knew it. And man, they didn't like it. So verse 19, um, it says there, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Okay, what does that tell you what they thought of his dreams? Now then, come and let us kill him. You know, let us greet him. Let's make sure he's okay. No, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we'll say a wild beast devoured him. And then then let us see what becomes of his dreams. And so they were going to step in. And, And if the old saying, time heals all wounds. Well, let me tell you, in this case, it doesn't. And that's not always true, does it? Their hatred, what I said earlier, has grown. And now they want to kill him. Verse 21, But Reuben heard this, rescued him out of their hands, and and said, 
let us not take his life. And so Reuben is the oldest of all the boys. And really, it seems like he's the only one thinking correctly. Seems like if he had any anger or hatred towards Joseph, it's gone. See, he doesn't want to do that. So he has handled things in the right way. Reuben, verse 22, further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And then the last part of that verse, put it in brackets, because this is what Reuben's thinking in the back of the mind when he says what he just said, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. See what he's saying? So Reuben says, throw him in a pit. But he's also thinking, and I'll come back when they're not looking. I'll get him out of that pit and get him back to dad safely. See? So again, Reuben's got a pretty good heart here at least. And he's wanting Joseph to be safe and help him out. So verse 23, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored, uh, very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And so these were cisterns. Here's a picture of them. They're basically they're natural or they dig them out of the rock. And so when it would rain and maybe there'd be a flash flood or just rainwater, they would collect it and then they could use it for drinking. They could use it for watering their livestock. And what you need to understand, we just read that they threw him into the pit. But this was very traumatic for Joseph. Okay, when finally um, the brothers are coming to Egypt and they're needing help and Joseph kind of takes them through some testing there. You know, says, well, leave, you know, Benjamin, do this, do that. At one point, this is what the brothers say in Genesis 42:21. They said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because, and it's talking about what we're reading today, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded. And another translation uses the word beg with us. Yeah, we would not listen. Therefore, this distress is on upon us now for that. So in other words, Joseph is screaming. And I could hear, this isn't a, a, a little snotty-nosed kid screaming. I think he has a sense what they want to do to him. And, and this is gut-wrenching type screaming going on here as they throw him into the hole. Verse 25, Then they sat down to eat a meal. What do you think they ate? Pretty sure it was a Reuben sandwich. Sorry. Sorry. I can't help it, okay? Okay. They, they sat down to eat a meal and as... <laughs> you know... You like that. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Okay. Okay. And they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and mirth on the way to bring them down to Egypt. So this is a trade route. I've told you that before. Okay. And this is what we see. Then some um, come, let us sell him, verse 27, to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brother listened to him. Then some Midianites, traders, passed by, and so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. And so thinking they, they, they got rid of their brother, what's going on there with the, going back between Ishmaelites and Midianites? You think what's, there's a mistake there. The Ishmaelites are descendants of Ishmael. The Midianites are descendants of Midian, Midian was one of Abraham's second wife's son. Okay, so these two people uh, hung together. They were family, if you will, in that sense. And so that's why basically they were just traveling together and no problem when they go back and forth. But anyway, they they really did think, okay, you know, we got even. Our brother's gone. We made a few bucks off him. 
as he's traded to Egypt. But, but God is going to have the last laugh, if I could put it that way, as we know he's watching all this. And actually, he's orchestrating, I believe, all this. He's behind Joseph. And he'll not only sustain Joseph, but in time he'll sustain the people of Egypt because of Joseph's management powers and wisdom. And Jacob and the brothers who have hated him so much as well, he'll take care of them. And so notice Joseph ends up exactly where God wants him. See, and God has done that. So verse 29, now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. In other words, you know, he's upset. What have they done? And he, he returned to his brother and said, the boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? And so he wanted to rescue him. That's probably what he was going to do is go get him out of there. And he's not there. So they goes to the brothers. Okay. And so, and, and again, he's thinking, so what does they say? They took, verse 3, when Joseph's tunic, they slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this place, we found this, please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunics or not. And then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him and Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. And so the brothers got exactly what they wanted. Their plan worked. Okay. They tricked their father. And you got to understand here, again, you see Reuben's heart. Um, he's the oldest and he's aware of the father. You know, have you guys thought now? But do you understand that uh, what is taking place here with what the brothers are doing? Look at verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic. Like I said, they slaughtered it. They dipped the blood. And then the, the very, and they brought it, verse 32, to their father and said, see. So in other words, what's going on for 22 years, they will allow this lie to just lay there with their father. Can you imagine doing such a horrible thing? It's one thing to lie to your dad when you're a kid, to your mom. You know, where were you? I was at Johnny's doing homework, you know, and you were really at Sally's, okay? But anyway, that's... See, I wasn't a Christian when I was young, so, okay. Sorry, I shouldn't use those examples. I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> if you're still dating, ignore that, okay? Um, but, but... um. They go right before their dad. And how could you imagine stepping to that depth where you would lie to one of your parents about one of your kids, their kids, that he's dead when he's not and lie about what really happened. But that's what they do. And so for 22 years, the truth will not be known. And could you imagine Jacob, how Jacob must have felt, you know, thinking, man, if I'd have never sent Joseph, this would have never happened. And so that's why you see the grief of Jacob. And so verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. I bet he did. And then all his sons and his daughters, here it is again. I don't think the daughters may have known, but here comes his sons again. You know, they arose to comfort him. Yeah, right. You rats. You know, you're the ones that have done this. And now you're being hypocrites of hypocrites trying to comfort your dad. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I'll go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And so the Lord has Joseph then, again, right where he needs him to be, to shape him by this trial and ultimately protect Israel. And so, again, Genesis speaks to you and I, and it has so much to say, doesn't it? It really does. It's a powerful message, you know. We begin to look at Joseph's life, beginning of a 13-year trial, and it reminds us, and this is what I want you to leave with this morning, that it's just like you and I. 
We are in the valley for the most part. Every so often there's little bumps in the valley and we get get up and it's like, oh Lord, this is great. But God is dredging us through his valley, isn't he? And he's shaping us. Why? Because he wants us to be more like Christ. And I think that's your desire. I know it's my desire. Lord, I want to be like Jesus. Every time my, my self raises itself, I want that, you know. And so God's doing that to make us like Christ. You know, the brothers, you guys, you think this through. They're the wrong example. They're an example of the flesh. They're the example of how we don't want to be. Where Joseph is an example of what it means to be in the right place and then ultimately be used of God. You know, with Joseph and God getting him, you know, it's those GPS things, global positioning satellites. And it's almost as if God had one of those on Joseph. And he said, I need to get him to Potiphar. I need to get him into Egypt to Potiphar, into that household. And God just kind of pushed the execute button and it took place. And so in your life, what are you going through? How's God shaping you? Pull back, okay? As it's not about Joseph, it's about Israel as a nation and ultimately uh, the Christ child coming from this, this family. So your situation is bigger than you. And, and God is doing something in you, but God wants to do something through you. And who knows what God has yet in store for you. And so again, if you're in the midst of a trial, um, maybe even try to find the, the means to say, okay, Lord, you know, I rejoice then. Because if this trial will make me more like Christ, then I guess it's worth it, Lord. Because that's really what I want. And that's what he wants. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.